Well, good morning. It's so good to be with you all this morning. Uh, my name, as Celine said, is Brett Vanderzee. I'm a minister at Springs Church of Christ up in Edmond, Oklahoma, and it's it's just really wonderful uh, to be here worshiping with you all. I'm really grateful that you've welcomed me into your worship this morning, and you're going to let me kind of lead us in our study of God's Word this morning. Uh, I, I know Ben Williams from graduate school at Oklahoma Christian, and uh, hopefully it goes without saying, but if it hasn't been said in a while, Ben's a great guy. Like He's just, he's fantastic. He's sharp. And so I, I loved being in school with Ben. Uh, and he he's so smart. You know, I had to get up, I remember, in a class and critique one of his papers. There was no critique to be spoken of. I, I'm not smart enough to, to critique Ben Williams, and I still have, have nothing but wonderful things to say about him. So I'm really grateful that he invited me to be with you all here this morning and to, to worship with you and to spend time in God's Word. And so we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 49, 1 through 7 this morning. So I'm going to go ahead and read our text, and then uh, I'll pray and, and we'll begin. Listen to me, O coastlands. Pay attention, you peoples from far away. The Lord called me before I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely my cause is with the Lord and my reward with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave of rulers, Kings shall see and stand up. Princes and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks for your word this morning. We praise you for the word of the Lord. And God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts this morning that we might hear a fresh word from your good news, that we might be changed by it, and that we might put it into practice in our lives. God, I ask you this morning for the gift of preaching. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I've been trying to listen to some more audiobooks. That's a good New Year's goal, right? More reading more audiobooks, more books. And recently I was listening to an audiobook by the comedian Jerry Seinfeld. 
And uh, this is uh, a book with a lot of his old routines kind of spanning his career as a comedian. And one of them, he talks about arrogance. And, and he was asking the question, he was saying, you know, where do you get the audacity to name your breakfast cereal life? <laughs> like this little square oat cereal and you name it after existence itself, right? Could have been squares, could have been Odie's, brownies. No, this is much bigger than that. You know, and Seinfeld says, what, what names did they try out other than that? Did they try Almighty God for their breakfast cereal? Wake up to a bowl of Almighty God? <laughs> you know, it's incredibly arrogant, right? To name a breakfast cereal after existence itself. That's pretty high and mighty. And we're continuing a sermon series this morning that Ben started a couple weeks ago called For the Nations. And one of the questions that Ben has been asking with you all is whether or not it is condescending, whether or not it's arrogant or high and mighty to have a gospel that we believe is for all peoples, for all time, for everywhere, right? To, to really present this message that we hope all peoples will believe on and, and act upon. Is that arrogant? Is that high and mighty? Is that condescending? Well, it is quite a, a high and mighty claim, isn't it? It is, it is audacious in some sense. But I've been wondering this past week as I've been able to spend time with Isaiah 49, if the gospel for all nations is high and mighty in lowliness. If the gospel occupies a high and mighty place, but occupies it in a lowly way, in a way that might vindicate its claims to be for everyone, everywhere, for all time. So I want to see this morning with you if that holds true as we spend time with Isaiah 49. Let's turn over to verses 1 through 3. We're also going to have it on the screen here, though. So Isaiah says, listen to me, O coastlands. Pay attention, you peoples from far away. The Lord called me before I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So Ben has done a great job. I got to listen to his last couple sermons. He did a great job talking about how the gospel really is universal. It's, it's for the nations. It's for the coastlands. It's for the distant lands. It's for the heartlands. It's for all lands, right? This is a message for all peoples. But what I don't want us to forget in this sermon series is that the gospel for all peoples was birthed from one people, right? We can't forget God's servant Israel, right? As he says in verse three of our text, and he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified, right? That fact is really important for us to realize that the gospel begins with Israel, right? The gospel for all peoples was birthed from this one People. I think that is a fact that we forget at our own peril, right? If we forget the particularity of God's story, if we forget the Old Testament, we just want to chop it off and let it go, 
Well, we're going to have a tendency to instead glom on some other alien growths to the gospel, right? We might add our own pet projects to it. Remembering that the gospel begins with Israel helps us to realize what it is we're proclaiming to people, right? When we take the gospel to all nations, we're not trying to tell them that they have to become Americans. We're not trying to tell them they have to become Westerners, right? We're inviting them into the church through baptism, and the church has been grafted onto God's people, Israel, and we can't forget them. Right, as Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 through 5, he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. We forget Israel at our own peril. Right? What could make the gospel condescending is if we tried to tie it to our own alien growths, right? our own kingdoms, rather than the kingdom of God that begins with his people, Israel. But God didn't choose Israel because they were high and mighty. Actually, God probably chose them, as you read the Old Testament, for the very opposite reason. It seems sometimes that he's chosen them precisely so his grace can shine all the more greatly through their lowliness, right? And we get hints of that failure of Israel, the, the struggles that they have in Isaiah 49 verse 4. He says, but I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my cause is with the Lord and my reward with my God. And so we get hints of exhaustion and discouragement and defeat for Israel in this text, right? They're, they're a nation that struggles. It's in their very name. They, they wrestle with God. They fail at times. You see that all throughout Scripture. And in fact, in Deuteronomy, uh, it says that it was not because you were more numerous, that you were great or high and mighty, more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Right? It wasn't Israel's greatness that prompted God to choose them. Right? In fact, it's more like when God chooses a king for Israel. Remember when Samuel goes to Jesse and Jesse trots out all of his young, tall, strapping, masculine sons and, and Samuel says, uh, these guys look like kings. It's, it's got to be one of these. And God says, no, no, I, I don't see kings the way that you do as human beings. I see to the heart. And so Samuel's like, you got any more? And they pull out scrawny, little, unimpressive David. And God says, that's the one, right? God chooses lowliness to reveal his light for the nations. But we chafe against that, don't we? I think, I think we want the gospel 
to be connected to, to something powerful, something big. We want the gospel to bring us a kind of worldly success, or we want it to be connected to our own pet projects or our own kingdom, or maybe if we can't have it connected to Israel as a powerful kingdom, we want to connect it to another earthly kingdom. Right? An example of this actually is, is the, uh, the hymnodist Isaac Watts. Uh, you might know Isaac Watts, the, the father of English hymnody, they call him. He's, I'm sure he's written some of your favorite hymns. He's written When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. He wrote my favorite Christmas carol, Joy to the World. Uh, really a prolific hymn writer. Uh, but one of the projects that Watts took on with, I think, more mixed results was his translation of the Psalms. So he took this on with good intentions of translating the Psalms into an English vernacular that, that people could sing, that it would be useful for singing. But what he did when he translated the Psalms was essentially scrub Israel from the Psalms, essentially pull Israel right out of the Psalms and instead substitute the British Empire. Right? So Watts goes in and every reference to Israel and Judah, he replaces Britain. Every reference to an Israelite king, he replaces these British kings. And so he takes the small, lowly nation of Israel at the center of the Psalms and instead puts the mighty, powerful, colonizing British Empire of the 18th century. And so a couple of examples in Psalm 67, he says, Earth shall obey her maker's will and yield a full increase. Our God will crown his chosen isle, a.k.a. Britain with fruitfulness and peace, right? And then in Psalm 60, he speaks of Great Britain. He says, lift up a banner in the field for those that fear thy name. Save thy beloved with thy shield and put our foes to shame. Go with our armies to the fight like a confederate God. In vain, confederate powers unite against thy lifted rod. Right, so you see how this kind of repackages the gospel with alien growths, right? If we forget Israel, we can distort the gospel for all nations by making it just about one nation, by making it just about the English nation, right? A different nation. And we can see how that could be condescending to our brothers and sisters around the world in Ghana or Belgium or Iran or wherever. The gospel for all peoples was birthed from one people. But God had big plans for this lowly people, Israel. Let's move on to verses five and six, where the Lord says, who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. That God says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God wants Israel gathered together. He wants them restored. Right? So the background of this text, this part of Isaiah, is that Israel's been destroyed, right? They're in exile. They've been scattered, right? The Assyrians and the Babylonians have come in and destroyed the northern and the southern kingdoms, and they've been spread out. And God says, okay, I want you to gather back together. I want Jacob, I want Israel to come back together. 
But then almost mid-thought, God kind of changes his, his speech here. And he says, actually, that's too small. That's too light a thing for you. I want you to gather back together, but really, I want you to be a light for the nations. I have bigger plans for you, this lowly Israel. I actually have huge plans for you to reach all the way to the ends of the earth, a light to the nations. It's an astounding goal, isn't it, for this fewest of all peoples to say, actually, I want you to be a light to everyone. I have a message for you to take to the very ends of the earth. It's an astounding goal to take this little mustard seed of a nation to the very ends of the earth. And yet as we look at the history of God's people, as we look at his gospel message through Israel and into Christianity, it really has spread to the ends of the earth. This is a map that I came across a little while back. It's a map where the continent's sizes are not based upon their geographical size. They're based upon the population of Christians in those continents. So the bigger the continent, the more Christians in them. This is from 1910. And so you can see Europe, obviously, and North America as the center of Christianity, the center of the gospel around the world. Well, fast forward 100 years, and this is the map in 2010. So obviously, the whole map has ballooned because the world's population has spiked incredibly in that 100 years. But look at the proportions between the continents, right? You see Central America has ballooned. Look at those tiny little sub-Saharan African dots in the top map and see how great it is in the bottom. See Asia Pacific, the purple part, how it's just ballooned, right? It really is incredible that the message has gone to the ends of the earth, right? It's gone all over. It really has been a light for the nations. And that's not to pat ourselves on the back this morning, right? In fact, Christianity waxes and wanes in different places at different times, and much of the success of the gospel has been despite the church's many failures, right? It's been because of God's grace, because of God's strength, as Isaiah says in 49. But the light of Israel shines from a high and mighty place, even though it began in lowliness. And that brings us to the final verse of our text, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave of rulers, kings shall see and stand up, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. I've willfully left out a pretty important question from our text until this moment. And that is, who is speaking in Isaiah 49? Obviously, this is the book of Isaiah, and it's the word of the Lord. It's God's word. But within the text, who's talking, right? God is having a conversation, we've assumed so far, with Israel, with his people Israel. And that's true. But there's also a sense that God seems to be talking not just to a people, but to one person, right? You'll notice that throughout this text, Israel has been called 
the servant, right? And they've been speaking actually in the first person singular, right? They've been talking as if it's just one person. And this isn't the first time that we've heard from the Lord's special servant in Isaiah. They spoke earlier in Isaiah 42, and we're going to hear from them later in Isaiah 53. But it seems that there is not just a people, but a single person. The person who is known as the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, where it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It's become as no surprise this morning that the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 49 is not just Israel, it is the faithful Israelite, Jesus Christ. Jesus is that servant of the Lord, that suffering servant of the Lord who knows sorrows, who knows lowliness, who is acquainted with grief, who is shamed and devastated on the cross. So yes, it is a high and mighty claim for this message to be for all nations, but it comes through the lowliness of Jesus Christ. It is a high and mighty claim, but it comes through the lowliness of the crucified and risen Messiah, Jesus. And it's that message that really has been a light for the nations. It really has overturned the world's regular hierarchies of power, right? The Greco-Roman world into which the gospel came was incredibly hierarchical. It was very much based upon these classical aristocratic Roman values, right? Of the powerful being at the top and then at the bottom, the scaffolding for the powerful is the slaves, the underclass. And atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche famously argued notoriously for a return to those aristocratic Roman values, right? He, he wanted people to be scaffolding for the great people, to be able to stand upon the lower classes, the slaves. But Isaiah reverses that, right? Isaiah, in our text, says that the one who is deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave of rulers, kings, shall see and stand up. Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. They shall bow down. And in fact, Nietzsche knew that Israel, that Jesus had overturned these classical values, right? He said, you want to know who won the battle between Rome and its aristocratic, powerful virtues and Israel, the Jews, right? And their preference for the lowly. Do you know who won? Do you know how they won? Look at who they're bowing down to in Rome. Right? Nietzsche says they're not bowing down to the gods of Rome. They're bowing down to the lowly Jewish Savior, Jesus Christ. And Nietzsche views this as a cause for lament. But for us, it's a cause for celebration. Right? For us and for peoples everywhere, this means that Jesus has sided with the lowly. This means that all people of all nations, anyone who's ever suffered has someone who cares. Anyone who's ever been lowly, anyone who's ever been oppressed or marginalized or overlooked, Jesus has brought this good news. He has reversed the regular ways about looking at power with his high and mighty lowliness. That's precisely what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2. He says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, 
who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness and being found in appearance as a human. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name so that at the name given to Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. We have a high and audacious calling. But we are only able to take on that calling insofar as we realize our lowliness. We have a high and audacious calling, but our worthiness for that calling is only to the extent that we realize our unworthiness, is only to the extent that we realize the way that we depend entirely on the grace of Jesus Christ. In other words, we cannot condescend if we have already descended to the lowly form of Christ. We cannot condescend if we have already taken on the lowliness of our gentle and lowly Savior Jesus. The Jesus who embraced the lowest of the lows on the cross. The Jesus who overcame, who reigns high and mighty through the lowliness of the cross and the power of the resurrection. That is our qualification. That is our credential to share this audacious message for all peoples, a light for the nations. But it's only for the nations because it began with one nation. It's only universal because it began scandalously particular in Jesus Christ. Church, let us stand and praise our lowly Savior, Jesus Christ, together this morning.